Welcome to Code Grays, an episode-by-episode recap of Grey's Anatomy. I'm Teresa Rosado. And I'm Megan Totsky. And join us for Season 2, Episode 9, Thanks for the Memories. Thanks for the memories. So, so this episode, it's our first Grey's Anatomy Thanksgiving episode, and like you said, I don't think that we get a lot of like plot development or character development, but we do just get some nice, I think, windows into who these characters already are, which is kind of a, a kind of plot development in and of itself. Like, we learn a lot about all of our favorite interns and our least favorite interns, George. They, they sort of operate on tiny islands that interact with each other slightly. You know what I mean? Like it's, we, it's, yeah. they really, it's really sort of individualized to each of our interns. Everybody's sort of having their, in, their, their own crisis of a little bit of identity and a little bit, I don't know. I guess I think they all kind of are having little identity crises. Yes. Yes. I would agree. That don't really matter. Like they're really low impact in terms of, of what, what is going on sort of big picture with the show right now. Yeah. I think it also does a nice job of, I think with the exception of maybe two outliers, probably Addison being one of them, and maybe the chief being the other, I think it gives us, I, like, it, it truly makes the convincing case that each of these characters are distinct characters at this point. Mm. Like, they are whole and entire unto themselves. And yeah. it truly is like an ensemble cast, I think, at this point. Yeah, I to- that's, that's a great observation. I totally agree. So should we, just because there's not a whole lot to say in terms of Derek and Addison, I think we should start with them. Yes. Well, I think we should start with your summary. Oh. But then I think we should start with Derek and Addison and just, we should rip the bandaid off. Oh, stop. Stop. (laughs) Okay. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Three, two, one. Go. So we have our Thanksgiving episode. Addison is wants to have sex with Derek for the first time since either of them cheated. It's very uncomfortable. We have Izzy, who cares a lot about Thanksgiving and wants to make a dinner despite not knowing how to cook and all of her friends abandoning her to go to the hospital. Except for George, whose family comes in town, his two brothers and his dad, because they go hunting every Thanksgiving to shoot a turkey. One of his brothers ends up shooting his dad in the butt. And also, oh, Meredith and the guy is in a persistent vegetative state, and then he wakes up, and then he fucking dies. (laughs) He does, because, you know, why not? (laughs) Because Meredith needs something else to go wrong. Yes. (sighs) Meredith's not unhappy enough, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's start with our unhappily married couple. Man. Addison and Derek. They just... I, I equate them to... I can't remember if I said this in my notes, to the opposite, to the wrong ends of a magnet trying to touch each other. Yes, I love like, that. That's how I feel watching them interact with each other. It's just like deeply uncomfortable and unnatural, you know, and I know I recognize that that's very intentional, but it is truly, truly hard to watch for me. <laughs> yes. It, they, I mean, they do just repulse each other. Like yeah. the energy is just so... I mean, all credit to Kate Walsh and Patrick Dempsey for sure, because they seem like they truly loathe each other. Yeah, that's really, really true. They really sell that relationship. (laughs) So the issue, right, is that Addison, they've decided to make it work, but are making no steps to making it work (laughs) beyond the decision that they are going to make it work. So Addison says on the ferry, which she apparently just stalks her husband on, and I don't really understand what their living situation is right now. But in the last couple episodes, they have, like, run into each other. And Derek's like, why are you here? And she's like, I'm looking for you. And it's very yeah. strange. It is it is super strange. You asked the question, Is do people regularly ride the ferry for no reason? And the answer is, is a hard no. Okay. <laughs> That's not happening as far as I'm aware. All right. So she's just creepy. <laughs> So she's being super creepy. And I also don't understand where she lives is another question that I have. That's fine because I don't understand where the hell Derek lives either. He's an emergent, like he's an emergency room neurosurgeon. (laughs) How does he not work, you know, like a pretty easy distance away from the hospital that he could be on call at at any moment? I don't know, man. (laughs) I just, I really don't get it. So they're on the the, uh, ferry and Addison says to Derek... So I was thinking that we could have sex tonight. And then we all collectively, like, 
clawed our eyeballs out. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 Our sexual organs just collectively shriveled up into themselves. And just, like, totally dissipated. (laughs) It's awful. Yes. It's so awful. And you know from that moment that they're not going to have sex in this episode. (laughs) Or ever. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And, I mean, the language they use around having sex is like, yeah, let's just... Let's just rip off the band-aid Ugh. and pull the stitches out. <laughs> Let's get it over with, they say at some point. <laughs> and then Derek keeps repeating, no anesthesia. <laughs> what? Oh my god. <laughs> Do you usually roofie a woman first? <laughs> right. That was a weird one. <laughs> oh, they just take it too far. They take it too far. So they've agreed to have dinner and then have sex. <laughs> Very romantic. That's how that's how sex goes, I think, is that you agree to it verbally and then later on participate in the aforementioned activity. <laughs> like, I actually really sympathize with Derek this episode because Addison tells him at the beginning of their day, we're gonna have sex tonight. And then Derek has to just think about that for the whole day. It's very stressful. <laughs> I really hear that. <laughs> so he goes to work and, of course... Ignores Addison entirely. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I think you're right that at the end of the episode, he comes home and Addison is sitting in the rain on the, I guess you would call it the porch of the trailer. (laughs) Crying. Crying. It's so sad. It's very sad. And she says something along the lines of, are you done hurting me? Because if you're not, like, I'm going to have to special order some thicker skin or something very sad. And you made the great point that, like, he never apologizes ever like I don't think he actually knows that word but in this situation like she really deserved that and he didn't Mm -hmm. did not deliver which is unsurprising yeah yeah he oh it's so frustrating because he chose this right Mm. like he had the choice Mm. and he chose to work on his marriage with Addison and Addison is obviously not a perfect person Mm -hmm. in this scenario but you know, she's making this effort. She's trying to be sexy. She's trying to be sweet. She's trying to create intentional time with him. Mm-hmm. And he completely blows her off, arrives back to their trailer, and he doesn't have anything to say to her. He tr- he doesn't answer her. He doesn't say anything about the fact that he just blew off this plan that they had agreed upon you know, at the beginning of the day and that they'd agreed upon in larger sort of philosophical terms, like probably a month ago. Right. You know? Right. It's awful. (sighs) I mean, it's really, it's hard to have sympathy for him. Yes. Because he chose this and now he doesn't, he doesn't want to do the work. And that's not how this, that's not how this works, dude. That's, that's not how any relationship (laughs) works, particularly one that's been totally shattered. And now you've agreed to try and slowly rebuild. (laughs) So Remains to be seen what the next steps for that particular relationship are, but slow moving to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Well, I watched the first few minutes of our next episode and it's just going to get more cringeworthy oh, from here. So. Great, great, great. <laughs> the next one's the episode with the guy who has the all night boner. Oh, the all day boner. <laughs> oh God. Derek's such an asshole in that one. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're going to get spoiler alert. Crev of the week next week is Derek. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, who should we tackle next? So I think we should talk about maybe Dr. Bailey and and kind of Meredith. Yeah. Doc, well, yeah, let's move into Dr. Bailey, Meredith, and their patients. Yeah. Well, sort of Meredith's patient, Mr. McKee. Yes. Oh, God. So wanna, tell us a little bit about Bailey's, <laughs> Bailey's master plan here. <laughs> Oh, God. So this is this is kind of what I was talking about earlier about characters coming into their own. And I feel like this is the start of Bailey really coming into her own for me. anyway. Mm-hmm. So she there's a there's a different attending on duty today. He's um, on loan from Mercy West. I have no idea why he's there. Really, I assume it's because it's Thanksgiving because it's a holiday and they. Yeah, the regular attending wasn't going to be there. So it's this new guy, Dr. Kent, and he's a douche nozzle. He's really terrible. Yeah. And he meets Dr. Bailey and is incredibly belittling to her and, you know, talks, goes on and on about how he wants to meet the Nazi. And he's heard such great things about this guy. And that's the only that's the only doctor he cares about is this guy, the Nazi. And of course, Bailey, a woman, (laughs) is the Nazi, this tiny black woman. (laughs) 
<laughs> is exactly the doctor that he's talking about. But she doesn't tell him this because she's a boss. Yeah. And she knows. She knows that there's a payoff here. And she's she's ready and willing to sit around and wait for it. So <laughs> so she's kind of she's kind of pushing this guy off all day and and just sort of letting him really trip over his own dick. <laughs> and meanwhile, she's working with Meredith on a couple of cases and they they just really come up with a nice chemistry together. They have like a yeah. nice easy working chemistry. I totally agree and I really love seeing that because I think that Meredith and Bailey I don't know, are are, are they're very different people. You know, they Bailey's sort of a take no shit and Meredith is incredibly sympathetic to some of the most challenging things. And but I think that they have a lot to learn from each other and they have a couple just sort of really nice moments in this in this particular episode. Um, and, and I just, I don't know. It's just, it's just sort of, a, I, I think that Bailey and Yang are a little bit more alike, you know, just sort of in it for the work. And I, I don't know. I just, I just agree. It just, it just sat really nicely with me to watch them work together. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's a nice kind of change. And well, and we kind of saw the beginnings of this last episode with Bailey standing up for. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Derek. So, yeah. So one of the cases that they're working on is on this guy, Holden McKee, who is, well, they they believe that he's in a persistent vegetative state, but he's actually been minimally conscious for 12 years, <laughs> and no one caught on to that. But Meredith catches on to it because this guy, you know, his nursing home brings him in. They've dropped him, like, trying to um, get him onto his bed or something. And so he has to, you know, be checked out. And he opens his eyes and looks right at her. And no one believes Meredith that he's looking right at her. They think it's just a response, which is not uncommon. But in this case, it turns out to be that this, that this man can be brought out of the state that he's been in for over a decade. <laughs> 16 years. Yeah. 16 years. Yeah. 16. Oh, yeah. I was confusing the 12 years with that other one. But yeah, yeah. 16 years. Yeah. So, oh, God. Yeah. Uh, it's. Yeah. His persistent vegetative state can drive a car. That's crazy. Right. Right. His child, he's got a son who's turning 17 the next week. So he was literally yeah. an infant <laughs> yes. when his dad was in a car accident. I'm not sure exactly what happened to him. So. Yeah. There's a few sort of interesting things going on here, right? I think that persistent vegetative states are, frankly, like, I would be, I was very hesitant to research persistent vegetative states because I think they're very, very sad. And I frankly don't want to know very much about them because they're terrifying. I would yeah. be interested to know how often people choose to keep, like, if I was a vegetable, if I was a person in a persistent vegetative state of PVS, I would not want you to keep me alive. You know, like Jacob and I have talked about this on my husband and I have talked about this on several occasions that like, please do not keep me alive. Like, let me go, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I was surprised, frankly, that they did keep him alive, you know, for 16 years because his wife, of course, moved on, got married and is now having a child with her new husband, you know? So I think that that's like, it's an interesting case from that standpoint, but of course, Meredith is just in a shit spot right now, emotionally. You know, she has just been... I, I'm just shocked that she has not driven her car into the sound at the, at the end of the last few episodes, you know? <laughs> Props to Meredith for just For literally just around. staying alive. Yeah. For breathing, <laughs> yeah. still. And still, like, doing her job. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, and doing it really well. Yeah, yeah. So... There's there's this great moment before Holden wakes up where she's talking to him and she says she's like, you know, it just must be so peaceful to be you. And I'm just, you know, it's it's all right. And you're going to be fine. And I just sometimes I just wish I were in your shoes. And she has this great self-aware moment where she says, and now I'm jealous of a vegetable. Like, that's how sad my life is. <laughs> and it's just it's so sad. And then they realize, of course, Derek sort of goes out on a limb and says, all right, let's test his cognitive function and realizes that he's been minimally conscious. And they go into the waiting room and it's this moment where the waiting room is, of course, full because it's a holiday. And he said and Derek says, you know, who do you think it is? And Meredith looks up and in an instant identifies who who Holden's wife is. 
And there's this moment later on at the very end of the episode when Derek says, how did you know that that was her? And she says, you know, waiting rooms are filled with people waiting for good news. And she's the only person who looked like she had given up entirely. And I just like, my heart just like breaks in half when she says that, you know, it's, it's like she's looking for herself in that crowd of just like totally hopeless, emotionally drained, you know, and it's just like, so I think that the, that particular, it's like a microcosm, right? Of, of <laughs> It's totally representative of the kind of people Meredith and Derek are, where Derek's like, I have no idea who it would be. I'm cup half full. And Meredith knows exactly in a moment, <laughs> you know, that his sort of <laughs> you know <laughs> unbridled optimism, I don't know. <laughs> it was really funny when I, when I read that in your notes. It was really funny for me because I almost noted the exact same thing, <laughs> that potentially like the saddest, most revealing part of this episode is that Meredith knows exactly which woman is the wife of this guy yeah yeah I just think it's so representative you know it's it's totally revealing so and of him too of Derek's just total like not only does he not recognize who she is but could not even possibly recognize why Meredith would know you know he's just like hopelessly optimistic but also just like out of touch (laughs) you know and like yes yeah, unable and oblivious yeah exactly in a pretty unattractive way yes exactly exactly I didn't realize that I liked this case as much as I actually do until I was watching the episode I'd yeah. kind of forgotten about it until until they brought him in and I was like oh my god yeah this guy but I liked it for a couple of a couple of reasons and it was mostly sort of like the interpersonal dynamics that Meredith shares with Karev and with Bailey mm. and with the patient mm. And I think that it's it's indicative of where the show's going to go with Meredith, which is to a place that that is very near and dear to my heart. And it's Meredith's depression, right? Which is like, at this point, we're not quite there. She's just sad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and she's kind of in shock and, and whatever. But I think that the show does does a real deep dive, pun not intended, <laughs> into into like what depression and denial look like on a person and I think that this is kind of the beginning of us moving there and one of the things she she talks about is you know she's she's sitting down with Alex and you know Alex is kind of having a shit day too because he's he's not at Izzy's Thanksgiving dinner because he has failed his his exams and so he's he's you know cramming for those and so he sits down next to a clearly troubled Meredith and he just says I tell you something you tell me something (laughs) and so they just sit there and talk to each other and it's it's really really nice and she says something about I feel like one of those people who's so freaking miserable they can't be around normal people like I'll infect the happy people it's such a real moment of like if you've ever just been in that place or if you are that person like in your friend group or your family or whatever like that's that's such that's such a raw feeling of like I should just shut myself away because I'm going to rub off on these other people who are who are so happy and and I don't want to do that you know it's so low Ah, it's so low I, I I agree that it's a total. I think you called it just just very very moving. I think I don't think there's really anything too sensationalist about where Meredith kind of goes emotionally. Like the things that get her there, sure, but like you know her actual interior state, I think is handled really really well over the next season, two seasons. Yeah, I think I I totally agree. So in the end, right, Holden, it, it's he's got a. a a brain bleed or a clot or something and, and they have to have surgery but it's of course a risky surgery and he decides to have it and he dies <laughs> yeah and it's tough it's tough to watch yeah well you and know he decides you sort of... to have it after kind of talking to his son who comes back to the hospital and they don't have anything in common and they don't have anything to talk about and you know this guy is like they've moved on and i should too so he decides to go ahead and have the surgery and you just know you just know that he's not going to make it out you know in part because he's kind of given up right and he's saying it to Meredith and he says to her you know like and it's they have sort of a touching relationship where she's the one who realized you know it matters to him that she delivers the bad news and he's she's sort of a good doctor with him that she's sort of helping coach this incredibly incredibly difficult case 
to sort of help coach him through the decision making process. And he sort of looks at her like like he knows that she's in a bad spot, too. And it's obviously a very different situation. But he says, you know, let's just let's just do it. You know, we have to we have to move on. And you're like, yeah, you know, Meredith, you do have to move on. And then he dies. (laughs) And it's like Bonnie dying. Right. Of like this sort of like it's like Meredith is having emotional death after emotional death. And all of these patients are really sort of representing that. And it's it's really hard to watch her roller coaster just like dip lower and lower and lower. I mean, it's awful. Like, it's really, really tough to watch. And she just needed she just consistently needs a win. And you just don't ever get the sense that that's coming for her. Yeah. And it's very much like this episode ends on a pretty happy note for everyone except for Meredith. You know, it ends with Meredith on the standing outside her own home, standing outside her own home, which was already the site of unhappiness. Right. And and all of her friends are inside. Literally every single one of her friends is inside, you know, hugging and getting ready for Thanksgiving dinner. And she's just standing looking through the window and you can just see it going through going through her mind what she said earlier to Karev, right? That she she doesn't want to ruin it for them by entering the space and bringing her meredithness into it. And it's it's so sad to like watch that thinking go through her mind. I know. And even Alex, you know, comes late and he's like, "Let's go in." And she's like, "No, you go." Yeah, you, <laughs> you know, go it's first. like you and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's just really, it's awful. She says, go go make her happy, you know? And you know she's, yeah. like, the next part of that sentence is, before I bring everyone down. <laughs> it's all. Yep. Uh, oh, it's awful. <laughs> we're, we're in the weeds with Meredith. Yeah, we really are. And I love it. Like, I love, I love peeling back the layers of that character. Another person in the weeds is George, who goes hunting. <laughs> uh, I... Uh. <laughs> nice <laughs> do long grasses count as weeds whatever this is anyway so he goes hunting <laughs> he goes hunting his family his dad and his two brothers come to the house to pick him up he clearly knows that they're coming they're chanting his name and they go hunting for a turkey every year which and like you, like why didn't george warn anybody like oh three crazy yeah. men might show up at the door in hunting gear with Shouting. rifles asking for me and I said credit to Izzy who when they show up her like immediate response is should I call the cops (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) Meredith just lets these whack jobs inside her home (laughs) it's like well what are you doing (laughs) do you ever watch the news (laughs) she's too busy have you literally ever met a man (laughs) don't do this Meredith (laughs) she doesn't have great taste in men so George's two brothers and his dad are clearly more, they're like blue collar workers. You know, one of them works in construction. You know, they they sort of have a way different life than George has chosen for himself. And they love to talk about cars. They love to talk about hunting, none of which, of course, George is interested in. And they're sort of like teasing him throughout the entire episode. And, And he's just annoyed, right? He's annoyed and he's like kind of being a baby about it. And it's just, I frankly like, for the first 75% of this episode, I didn't really have much to say or think about this, about watching this, you know, like it's just sort of, I think partially because I'm tired, George makes me tired and watching his family makes me tired. <laughs> and like, also I grew up in the Midwest. So this is like, I have been turkey hunting on Thanksgiving and I, you know, like, yeah, I just, I, I just didn't really have a lot to say or think about it until until the end when George and his dad have this sort of real, like, honest conversation sort of about George's attitude through the day. So George eventually, of course, there's a turkey. George insists that he's got to kill it so they can go home. He does it. They are, like, sitting around drinking beers, and one of his brothers shoots their dad in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they're teasing George for, you know, being a surgeon and for being an intern and not being a real doctor and and so on and so forth. So then they, of course, go to the hospital. And and George is like has his panties in a bunch about it because he's been teased all day, which is exhausting. <laughs> but his dad's message is essentially like, you know, you have to sometimes engage with us. And, and we don't. George is saying, you treat me like I'm stupid. You treat me like I'm a little kid. And his dad says, we try to include you, but you don't like the stuff that we like. 
And we don't know how to talk about the stuff you want to talk about. You're not one of us. But damn it, we don't treat you like you're stupid. You treat us like we're stupid. And I think that I appreciated that we both sort of, I think that we both maybe identify with George in this situation a little bit. Yes, definitely. But also, like, really recognize that he picks wrong here. Like, George's attitude toward this is is sort of off base. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that personally, at least, I I appreciated his dad's monologue in this moment because I like I have a pretty different profession and lifestyle than either of my brothers. I also have two brothers, and I do identify with like that teasing and that sort of questioning about you know, oh, what do you do at your job? It's so different from ours and whatever it is. But like, I just don't, I think that George is being a little elitist. And I think that he's trying to sort of be above his own family dynamics, which is unfair when your family dynamics, like, yeah, they're teasing him pretty harshly, but like, ultimately his family is really just trying to get to know him and he's acting like he's better than his family dynamics, which I just Mm -hmm. don't think is fair. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree. I y- you watch this episode and it's like it's like her his brothers are incredibly obnoxious. They are. They're they're really yeah. annoying. And the car game is stupid and I wouldn't want to play it either. But George's <laughs> response is he starts from a from a place of being totally fed up with them. And so there's never there's never any any bend there's never any flexibility in the way he relates to his brothers he's just always always on the defensive with them and at a certain point it's like you know this is kind of brotherly sibling stuff right like they're they're teasing each other they're you know pushing and shoving each other they're just they're just being dudes who are brothers and probably don't see each other that much siblings yes (laughs) and so it's definitely it's hard for me to watch him because i I think that George is a really kind person. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like George. I think he's useless, as one of his brothers describes him. as Like, you don't do anything. And I wanted to be like, that's exactly right. He doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but he is a really kind person and a good-hearted person. And so it's hard for me to watch, his, watch him interact with his brothers and be like, where is that George? Like, what is, what is this George? I get that you're fed up and that this has been your whole life, but... How, like, can you really not see what's going on here? I, like, I don't understand, yeah. you know, like you are training yeah. to be a surgeon. And at some point, you know, at, in his final monologue, the father says that one of the brothers is a dry cleaner and the other one works at the post office. And like, this is not to sort of decry or insult people who work at the post office or at the dry cleaner but like there's a huge gap between those jobs and their excitement level or prestige and being a surgeon and like yeah if George can't see and recognize how that could cause some insecurity which could also you know then influence some behavior how did he get into medical school? Like, you should be, you should yeah. be brighter than that. Like, come on. No one, no one wants to have like someone's education or status lorded over them, especially if it's a family member. And and George just starts out from such an elitist place. It, it's like, yeah. it's like, of course your brothers can't relate to you in any way other than sort of mocking and making fun of you like this is you really really set yourself up for that by coming at them with this with this attitude it's really not doing yourself any favors it's not doing them any favors it's just not a good look all around and yeah that's from like a pretty pretentious person who is like (laughs) recognized as being basically insufferable in my own family And I like to think that I'm not a total elitist asshole, you know, at <laughs> holiday dinners. So I think I think maybe we should end with discussing a little bit of Burke and the actual Thanksgiving dinner and Izzy and, and that good yes. stuff before we move on to our bits. So Izzy, we probably should have framed this but maybe a little bit better, but this all of this is occurring while Izzy is cooking and planning a Thanksgiving dinner, uh, despite, as you said in your summary, not at all knowing how to cook. So we've seen <laughs> Izzy in the kitchen a lot. She's a baker. She bakes all the time. It's pretty endearing, but she apparently doesn't cook at all. 
And so it's a real struggle, especially when all of her friends abandon her, just out and out abandon her, and she was counting on them for help, which I don't really know how much help they would have been, but I see her point. (laughs) The company would have been nice anyway. So Yang shows up with Burke because she's like, you know, I can just blow off my boyfriend. And she has a pretty funny line about that. But so Izzy's at first really uncomfortable, but Burke, who wants everyone to call him Preston, is incredibly gracious and, you know, just really generous with his time and offers to assist Izzy. And they make a really great team making this turkey. They do do a great job. They treat it as though they're as though they're performing surgery on the turkey and Izzy is assisting him and they're adorable. (laughs) It is really very sweet. It's like very endearing. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's the best Burke and I wish that Burke was around more often. Seriously. It really is the best uh, the best version of him. And so they're sort of treating it as surgery and Burke uh, his, we find out that his mother owns a restaurant in Louisiana, and so he really knows Alabama. how to cook. He's a very good cook. And I'm sorry, Alabama. Anyway, so he's really quite a good cook, and he's helping Izzy through this, which is very sweet, and he's acting like her teacher, and it's, you know, but in a, I don't know, sort of a heartwarming kind of way. And then later on in the episode, he says to Izzy, you know, Why don't you plan this big dinner for you know you couldn't cook? And she has this, like, Tiny Tim on Christmas little monologue about how busy their lives are and how, like, the world is just sort of passing them by as they work their asses off for this job that is so demanding and that they never have any time for each other and that they just, you know, she just thought it would be nice if they could all just sit down and sort of break bread together. <laughs> and and it's, like, so uncharacteristically sweet of this it, show. It really <laughs> is. She, she flat out She's says... Just- I just like Thanksgiving, Dr. Burke. Yes. And the show is just way too cynical for that. <laughs> I know. And it knows it, you know. And Burke's like the only person in this show who could possibly even remotely meet Izzy at that place. Yes. You know? Yes. I mean, maybe Derek, because he can be oblivious and optimistic, but yeah. certainly not the Derek that we have right now. No. And it's actually a like just a brief little window into several exchanges that Izzy and Burke have that kind of relate to the fact that they're a little bit more traditional in their belief systems and mm-hmm. and appreciate life outside outside of the scalpel. And I yeah. Burke just you just he's you know, he just grins. Like you just see him he's just so surprised. Like he's just been pretty beaten down, I think, by Yang's cynicism. Yeah. and it's just this moment that's really genuine and sweet and i'm just like why don't burke and izzy date because they would also be a really beautiful couple they're both gorgeous people and they actually they they actually have things in common as opposed to burke and christina who even at the end of this episode when they're kind of having their their moment in the car after thanksgiving dinner still I, they keep having these conversations where at the end of them, they smile and look deeply into each other's eyes as if they've really made some progress. And I'm like, what, did I watch something totally different? Yeah, their conversations might as well be like one of them is speaking French and the other one is yes. speaking Portuguese. Yes. You know? <laughs> so Burke is, Burke, that's when Burke tells Christina about his mom, you know, owning this restaurant down south and whatever, whatever. And he's like, you know, you're you're really tough on the outside. You don't ask a lot of personal questions. And so he decides to volunteer his personal stuff. Great, great move. And then <laughs> Yang, this would have been like, insert your own like childhood Thanksgiving anecdote here. And it's, it's like Mad Libs. <laughs> and instead, Yang talks about the surgery she did today on a dude who swallowed a wishbone hole. <laughs> yep. And Burke just smiles at her so lovingly. And I'm like, why do you look so happy about this totally one-sided conversation you just had like smiles at her in a way that's like i love you and i want to spend a lot of time like i envision this being a long-term relationship you know not smiles in a way of like a oh this is a fun thing you know it's like a genuine sort of loving smile of like i love the person that you are and i think that we are well matched for each other and it just doesn't make any sense to me (laughs) It makes me feel a little crazy. 
and I would make a, a, a similar, not totally the same argument about Izzy and Alex, right? That they just could not, they're as different as Burke and Yang are. Yeah. In terms of sort of, uh, sort of their personal values and their personal, I don't know, relationship goals and human goals, you know? Yeah. It's just, a, it, it makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, I think that they grow into each other more instead of, I think that, I think they grow into each other versus Yang and Burke grow away from each other. Which seems and, impossible uh, given how far apart they started, but go yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that it's a astute observation. I think that that's, they're, they're really, I think that the writers in, in this particular episode are really capturing how similar Burke and Izzy are. And I like that. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So the episode, you know, kind of ends with um, the interns who have abandoned Izzy, you know, realizing in the intern locker room oh crap we're all here who's with Izzy and so they sort of troop into the house and again it really bothers me that no one apologizes in this episode like George George is the only one who had a family obligation so he kind of gets out of it but even he should have been like I'm really sorry that I wasn't here for you but everyone else just kind of troops in you know Yang puts wine on the table and is like I brought booze it's like And Izzy, Isabel Stevens, Saint Izzy, stands up and you think she's just going to, like, have her own monologue. And she just takes a deep breath and says, totally genuine, let's just eat. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And in that moment, I realized that Isabel Stevens is a far better person than I will ever be. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. It's a great moment. I mean, I, and it's, she's so Izzy in that moment, you know, like she's just so, like she's so genuinely herself. You really believe that we sort of know our characters well enough to know that, she, no, she would really do that, you know, Yeah. which I like. She's going to breathe like it in and I like, breathe it out and then be yeah. done with it. <laughs> and I like that. I just, oh, she's, she's a, she's a pretty delightful, often annoying, but in this, I think it's a pretty, probably just because I'm a sucker for Thanksgiving and holiday episodes in general, but yeah, I'm a huge sucker for, for her in this, in this episode. Yeah. She's, she's great. A great, a great episode for Izzy for sure. Terrible episode for everybody else, except for gay Joe. (laughs) Gay Joe. Gay Joe with his boyfriend, Walter, who is a catch. Walter is yeah. so handsome. I think that every single time. I love Joe and Walter. <laughs> yeah. 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 And Walter keeps getting dragged to these straight people events. And they the always best. go so horribly. Just they're always like a worst case scenario. And I'm just like, God bless Walter for still being like, sure, Joe, I'll go meet those crazy straight friends of yours again. <laughs> I know. I'm looking forward to the camping. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right, should we get into our bits? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. What do you have for song of the week? Song of the week, I had Sad Eyes by Josh Rouse, Mm. which I'm pretty sure was written for Meredith in this episode. (laughs) One of the lyrics is literally, Sad Eyes, you're the only one whose blue skies are gray. (laughs) Sad Eyes. You are the only one whose whose blue skies are gray. And it's the song that plays at the end of the episode when she's looking in on as an orphan into the Charles Dickens home, you know, like it's totally it's I mean I really love Josh Rouse. I don't know if it's Roos or Rouse, but I, I typically really love his music. I wanna switch mine to the sad eyes song. Because I almost picked it, <laughs> and then I was like, no, I'll pick this other one, and now I want to stick with Sad Eyes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, song of the week for both of us. There was never another song involved. It's just Sad Eyes. <laughs> it was always Sad Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I also, there's a lot of songs out in the world called Sad Eyes, yeah. and I have yet to meet one that I don't love. <laughs> true. That's That's extremely true. Yeah. Which is probably more telling of my music taste than about, you know... <laughs> the library of songs out there called Sad Eyes. <laughs> Death Tally, Holden, and then I think we both counted some turkeys. <laughs> it's Thanksgiving. So, so yeah, most of the turkeys. <laughs> so, 007, I think this is aren't we in consensus, right? Yeah. That there's not an obvious 
there's not a bad choice. No one's a crap doctor. Yeah. Everyone does really, so, really well. Everyone really keeps it together and performs ably. Yeah. Way to go, guys. Good job, doctors. I, yeah. Way yes, to do I medicine, agree. which is your job. <laughs> we literally just basically do your job. So, Chief Resident, what what did you what did you have for Chief Resident? I said Meredith because she was a really good catch with Mr. McKee, right? Like, she's the one who catches that. Hey, this guy is not in a vegetative state. He's definitely awake. So, Meredith, and she does really good patient care with him afterwards, and like doesn't sugarcoat things and is to the point, and and so I really liked her this episode. Yeah. Yeah, I gave it. I, I had two chief residents. I had Meredith because I think that she was really, really excellent with excellent, excellent with Holden, despite her life being just in total shambles and all the reasons that you mentioned. I also had Bailey as a chief resident. I really appreciated her work with Meredith and her work with Bailey and and you know her her Doctor Kent, like everything that she did, sort of was great in this episode. There's one particular line that really got me. Yang comes in for the the wishbone surgery, and Yang says, "You know, why are you why you're working on Thanksgiving?" And Bailey has this great line where she says, "You know, you work the extra shifts and you get the extra practice," and that's kind of mm-hmm. her response. And it ultimately she kind of goes on and and talks about how she's pregnant and she's worried about losing the experience when she's home with the baby but I really love that like you work the extra shifts you get the extra practice you become a better doctor and I like that because I think that particularly when you look at Christina who does work hard but she she's also just like you really get the sense that Christina is a naturally very very gifted surgeon and I think that Bailey I love that message of like you have to work hard to get better at what you do and yeah. and I, I just think that's like so simple, but so honest. And I think that that's truly what makes Bailey such an excellent doctor is that she just like she is just a fucking hard worker. And I love watching that. And I love such a basic, simple answer of like, no, like I need to practice my, you know, my craft and to get better at it. I need to practice it. And this is, you know, being here on Thanksgiving is how I best get to practice that. Right. Right. And I think it makes her a good doctor. Yeah, I, I agree. What about Karev of the week? Man. We have another group Karev. Those assholes. Those assholes for not going to Izzy's dinner. Yeah, it's got to be Meredith, Yang, and Alex. Come on, dudes. I don't care how sad you You are, Meredith. Still a dick move. Yeah. Should we do line of the week? Yeah. I love this. is like a total throwaway line, but it literally makes me laugh out loud every time I watch this episode. (laughs) When, When they show up to the house I'm sorry when Yang and Burke show up to the house and Izzy's like you brought Burke (laughs) like and Yang's like well what was I supposed to do and Izzy was Izzy's like I don't know blow him off and Yang says and I don't know why it makes me laugh so hard but I just I love her delivery of that line (laughs) like her her tone when she delivers it is just spot on (laughs) and also Burke is like totally within earshot which just yeah, makes it even right funnier. <laughs> he has like a great line in response. He's like, uh, Izzy's like, hi, Dr. Burke, come on in. Let me take your coat. And, and he's like, when I show up to somebody's home and they weren't expecting me, they get to call me Preston or like something <laughs> yes. totally like douchey but funny. <laughs> it's great. Uh, <laughs> I had another throwaway line of the week and it's when Yang is having an exchange with Joe. She opens the door and Joe's like, hi, <laughs> this is Walter, my boyfriend. And Yang just goes, whatever. <laughs> Tell me you brought the... I brought pie, pumpkin. You're a bartender. Did you bring scalpels? <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's so, it's good. so excellent. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> and Walter just standing there like, oh, God. What? <laughs> <laughs> What did I get myself into? It's a good thing I really love you, Joe. <laughs> All right, so, so you're going to hit us with a medical fact of the week, a terrifying medical fact of the week. Yeah, so <laughs> I didn't, I did not, like I said, full disclosure, I did not do deep medical research about persistent vegetative states because they fucking terrify me. Okay, so full disclosure, this is very shallow surface level research because I just don't want to know. Like I want ignorance is bliss in this particular situation. Some things you're just better off not knowing. Exactly. Exactly. 
So I was interested in sort of like how many people wake up from persistent vegetative states. And what it led to was sort of a distinction between a coma, a persistent vegetative state, and a minimally conscious state. Okay, so I read this one story, and this might be totally old news to the rest of the world. (laughs) I had never heard of this particular case. This is a case of, his name is Martin Pistorius. Pistorius. He's a British man. And when he was 12 years old, he was born in, in the early 80s, I believe. And he, when he was 12 years old, he came down, this is, I'm, I'm reading off of two sort of source articles here, one of which is from Fox News in 2015, and one of which is from NPR. So when he was 12 years old, he came down with an illness that they, they didn't really know what it was. They assumed that it was a form of meningitis, and ultimately it led to him be going into a, a coma or what they assumed was a persistent vegetative state. Right. So they you know, took care of him in his home for a while. He sort of, you know, deteriorated. He was sort of in a full persistent vegetative state and they sent him to sort of a home. And (laughs) he was in a vegetative state for 12 years, for a dozen years. And little did they know that he was actually minimally conscious. So he was sort of, he was essentially trapped in his own body and his mind was totally fine, is my understanding of it. (laughs) So he, yeah, he, he truly describes it as, as really, really, really terrible. He says that, um, let me find this quote real quick here. He, he says that everyone was so used to me not being there that they didn't notice when I be, oh, so sorry. I think that he was sort of was in a vegetative state and then he sort of was coming out of it after a couple years. And he said, everyone was so used to me not being there that they didn't notice when I began to be present again. Um, he said that the stark reality really hit me that I was really going to spend the rest of my life like this, just totally, totally alone. He says that his mother was unaware of her son's consciousness and didn't think that he could process anything that she said. And and he even recalls, this is really, really very heartbreaking. One day she uttered to him, I hope you die. Uh, and, and, you know, of course he's fine now and his mother is still alive. And she says, you know, I know that's a horrible thing to say, but I really just, I really just wanted some relief. Yeah. Sure. And, and Pastor, yeah, you know, so it's really, <laughs> and, and he says that he began to sort of, let me find this one. He says the rest of the world felt so far away when, when, when my mom said these words, but he, he sort of found a way, he says he found a way to reframe even the ugliest thoughts that haunted him. And, uh, and he told, this is in the NPR interview. He says, as time passed, I gradually learned to understand my mother's desperation. Every time she looked at me, she could see only the cruel parody of the once healthy child she had loved so much. So she, he sort of started to understand that his mother was interacting with this child who she, who essentially in her mind died, you know, yeah. not just in her mind, but in her life experience. Yeah. And he said, I really came to terms with that my mother you know, was grieving my loss. And it wasn't because she didn't love me. It wasn't because she wanted me dead. It was because I was sort of already dead in her eyes. And so eventually he, it's it, it sort of to the credit of this, of his nurse. Um, sorry, I'm going back and forth between these two, these two articles. One of his caretakers, her name was Verna Vanderwalt. She began to notice signs of comprehension when she was, when she was talking to him and and he said that he having the, another person sort of validate his ex- experience and his existence totally changed his perspective. He was really, really down on himself. And he sort of started to try and work to, to make his signs of consciousness, consciousness more obvious. So, for instance, he used to follow the he learned to tell time based on on the suns, the shadow of the sun in his room. And and watching the sun helped the nurse, his, his caretaker, her name is Verna, um, realized that he was paying attention to more than just nothing, you know, that he really was sort of conscious. And eventually it, you know, she sort of fought for him and and got some cognitive testing and it was clear that he was, you know, conscious. (laughs) And yeah, yeah. So he, so it's a super interesting story. He is now like happily married. He's 38. (laughs) So crazy. (laughs) And he's like, like living his best life. Yeah. So he actually... He wrote a, a memoir about it. His memoir is called Ghost Boy. You can go over to ghostboy.com. He's like this attractive middle-aged man. And he is like, wrote up, his memoir is on the New York Times bestseller list. Like, he's totally, totally fine after tw- a 12-year physical pause 
without a mental pause. So super, super fascinating stuff. I don't think that I can read that memoir because I'm not prepared for it. <laughs> That's, I, I don't blame you. I don't know that I could either. I, <laughs> I don't need any help feeling trapped inside of my body. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my God. Maybe we could get him on the show. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be really wonderful. It would either be wonderful or just like too real for us. Yeah. I might need a sub for that episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We would have to have, like, like different hosts for that episode. <laughs> like, people who do not deal with anxiety could interview him. Ugh. So wow. that's, well. that's that's what we've got. I mean, it's it's a real thing. It really happens. Yeah. Oh, my God. That'll just give you nightmares. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> sit on that. <laughs> all right. I think that's all we have for this week. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, not the most eventful episode for Grays, but just a really nice one. I'm yeah. so ready for Thanksgiving now. I would say that if you're, yeah, it's a wonderful fall episode for these fall days that are coming our way, but I would say that if you are not, if you're somebody who doesn't, who just listens and doesn't watch the show, thank you. But if you're interested in a good, <laughs> solid, feel-good episode, turn it on. It's a, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree with that. And next episode is going to be, it's going to be pretty action-packed. I think it's going to be another angry episode for you mm. and me. I did, I did want to just end with some, some listener mail Ooh. because we got some, we got listener mail, we got listener mail. And so last, uh, I don't think it was last episode, but it was the episode before we had asked for more, more examples of like nurses in primetime television and mm. network television specifically and we talked about nurse jackie mm -hmm. as as being great but also being on showtime so a little bit less accessible and so victoria from boston says random but i was brushing my teeth listening to your podcast carla on scrubs super good show and totally different from other medical dramas the show oh, yeah. definitely plays with mundane medical type scenarios more than the sexy gray's dramatic surgeon to the rescue stuff which is true. That is I don't so know how true. we forgot about scrubs. Carla. Because I remember talking to nurses at our alma mater at St. Kate's, and they were very much like, oh, actually, scrubs is, like, pretty realistic. That's so true. Yeah. Huh. So shout That's out great. scrubs. Yeah. Thanks one. so much for writing in. So anyway, if you would like to get in touch with us and chat about Grey's Anatomy, uh, either by being on the show or just, you know, by email, you can email us at codegrays at gmail.com. You can also, of course, find us on Tumblr, code-grays.tumblr.com. And we've got a pretty solid Twitter presence. Mm. I made friends with a stranger yesterday, <laughs> and I'm still riding high on that. But we are on Twitter, at code underscore grays underscore. And then, as always, you can listen to our show pretty much anywhere podcasts are available. We are on Podbean, which is our great host, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast. So check us out. Give us good reviews. If you listen to us on iTunes, give us five stars at the very least. Because we're great. <laughs> we are pretty fantastic. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week for episode 10. Thanks for the memory of things I can't forget. <laughs>